So today we are going to continue in this series on judges. Um, and we're going to be looking at one of the judges who you, you may be familiar with. His name is Gideon. And Judges actually uses it, it, uh, three chapters to cover the story of Gideon and the accounts of all that happened and all that he did. I want to try to summarize some of that for you because we can't read all three chapters. But basically what happens is the same thing we've seen over and over in Judges is that the, the Israelites would do pretty good for a while, but they would turn and begin to worship idols, worship Baal, and these other gods who... Uh, the people who were in the promised land that the Israelites were going to inhabit, uh, this is a lot, I know, um, were going to inhabit these people there that were worshiping these pagan idols and pagan gods. Um, they be the Israelites, God's people, began to be influenced by them, and they would ultimately give themselves over to worshiping uh, these gods of, of the people, the Canaanite people. And every time God would say, okay, you want that, he would just hand them over to the people. They would end up being oppressed. They would end up um, miserable. They would cry out to God. God would raise up judges for them. Um, basically what that means is deliverers or saviors, so to speak, that would come in and deliver them out of the hands of whatever enemy it was that had taken them captive. Um, Gideon is one of those deliverers, one of the judges, one of those so-called, so, so to speak, saviors that point us to the Savior who was to come, Jesus. All of these judges are imperfect. They're, they're imperfect pictures of Jesus who was to come. And so today, as we look at Gideon, understand he is one of the many judges that God uses to deliver his people from oppression. Um, and as we get into this, um, God comes to Gideon. I want to read in uh, Judges 6, verse 11 is where I want to begin. God is about to raise up Gideon to defeat the Midianites. The Midianites were one of the Canaanite people groups that um, were coming against Israel. And it says this in uh, Judges 6, 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abazrite, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. We've talked about this several times here, but you don't thresh wheat in a wine press. A wine press was a, a hole dug in the ground. You threshed wheat on like a hilltop in the open where you could throw the wheat up and the wind would blow away the chaff. The wheat would fall to the ground. It separated the wheat from the chaff. And so what would happen is um, that would be where you would thresh the wheat. But Gideon, because he is afraid of the Midianites, he's down in a hole trying to separate the wheat. Um, so understand that's what's happening. And so then it says, he was threshing the wheat. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Now this is a big surprise to Gideon because he is fearful. He does not see himself as a mighty warrior. Then it says, pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where all his wonders that our ancestors told us about when they said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. He's not thinking about the covenant that God made with them, which was conditional upon their obedience, upon them keeping him as the one true God, not going and worshiping these other gods. He's not understanding what's happened, but he's not understanding also the covenant that God had made with them. It says, the Lord turned to him and said, go in the strength you have. And save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? 
Pardon me, my Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. He feels very insignificant, very weak, and he, he begins to even give excuses and reasons why he couldn't possibly do what God told him to do. My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, and this is where I really want you to hear. This is the, the verse, the passage, the, even the, the phrase that caught my attention. The Lord answered, I will be with you. And you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. Gideon replied, if I've found favor in your eyes, give me a sign. And what, what's about to happen is there's going to be several signs, several tests that Gideon gives God for God to prove to him that he'll be with him, that he'll give him victory. And, and God patiently does this. He'll patiently do this with us as well. But understand, he has told him he will be with him. Gideon is trying to confirm this. And so he said, please, if I found favor, give me a sign that it is really you talking to me. Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait until you return. Now, if you go on through um, chapter 6, he throws out a fleece. And there's a couple of different tests that, that he does to make sure God's going to be with him. And then he goes and he, he destroys the altar to Baal and the Asherah pole. Um, then it comes time for him to go to battle with the Israelite army to fight this Midianite army. I'm not going to read through all of this, but here's basically what happens. Um, God says, look, if I'm going to get the glory for this victory, you've got too many men, Gideon. He says, look, what we're going to do is you tell them if any of them's afraid that they can leave. And he does that, and 22,000 men go home, leaves him with 10. God says, there's still too many. If, if, if we go to battle right now, you may still say it was your ability that won this victory, but so that it'll be very obvious that it's my ability and my grace and my sufficiency that wins the victory. I want you to send them down to the river. And some of them got down on their knees to drink. Some of them picked water up with their hands and, and lapped it out of their hands. Well, God told him to keep the ones who lapped the water out of their hands. And he ended up with 300 men to go and fight an entire army. But God used those 300 men to cause a disturbance around the Midianite camp. And it caused a confusion. They began to strike each other. And those 300 men literally, just because of the power and the strength of God, stood by and watched an entire army destroy itself. Not long after that, Gideon's won the victory, that they've been delivered. They, they're back in a time... Um, where they can be prosperous and things are good. And this man who saw himself as so insignificant and as so much of the least of these, who thought he could not possibly deliver the Israelites from the hands of Midian, actually begins to think a little bit too much of himself. He goes and he makes what's uh, called an ephod. And this ephod is a garment that was worn by the priest who would then go and inquire of God. There was to be one in Israel, and it wasn't supposed to be the one that Gideon made. He even begins to see himself as more sufficient. He tells them, look, I don't want to be your king, but now I kind of do want to be your king. His, his mouth was saying, I don't want to be your king, but his actions were saying, I do. And he makes this a five, and what it does, instead of leading people closer to God, he actually leads them, the Bible says, to whore themselves to other gods to prostitute themselves to other gods. And this man who had been 
at one time so dependent on the Lord, so unsure of himself, but, but willing to step into the, the sufficiency of God is now looking to his own sufficiency and what he was designed to do, deliver and then lead people to follow God, he actually falters on. We think about this, you know, something that happened hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago can seem abstract to us, but how many of you have a problem admitting you need help? Anybody? Problem admitting you need help? So I do too. Like, I, I don't like to have to ask for help. Um, so, for example, my family has a pond house. It's been in the family for a couple of generations. Well, the roof on this pond house was leaking. I used to be in roofing. I did roofing work for 10 years before I went into ministry. So guess who gets the call? Me. I go out there. If you hadn't noticed, it's been unseasonably hot. Spent a day on the roof. My mind is saying, you can still do this. My body is saying, you're an idiot. And so I got there one morning, started working about 8. I pulled out of there about 7. I get home. Never take a tub bath. If I'm, if I'm in a tub, it's because I'm sick. I, I had to literally swing my legs around to get out of the truck. I hobble in. I'm like, I'm getting in the bath. So I, I, I lay down. I just go to try to pull myself up. I catch a cramp in my left hamstring. I couldn't straighten. My, my, my arms begin to cramp. I'm like, I'm dying. I got out. I, I go, and I just lay down on the bed. This is probably about 8 o'clock. I fell asleep, didn't even, I wasn't trying to, I just fell asleep. I woke up the next morning, didn't eat supper, anything. And you would think that I would realize this is too much for me. You know what I did the next day? Same thing, right? Because I don't like to ask for help. You think that I would have waited, I would have asked somebody to come and help, but we are self-sufficient many times. We see ourselves as self-sufficient. We like to live self-sufficiently. All of us have this tendency to want to declare this independence from God instead of depending on him, instead of trusting in his ability. It's more like we somehow think I'm gonna muster up the strength even if I've never been able to do it. I'm gonna just keep trying until I finally succeed. And it just doesn't work. The self-sufficiency causes us to wrestle with bondage to all sorts of addictions and materialism. And we, we find ourselves feeling purposeless because we're trying to just live life self-sufficiently, creating a purpose for ourselves. We find ourselves in condemnation and shame. We struggle with our sin. We struggle with fear. We struggle with a lack of courage. And here's what I believe, guys. I believe one of the main reasons that we fall into this trap of self-sufficiency is because we don't know the God who is with us. We don't understand who he is and what he's really like. And so listen, we rely on the God we've created rather than the true God. And what I mean by this is the God we created, the God that through our broken lens, the God that we see, not necessarily the God of the Bible and the God he's revealed himself to be, but the God that we see, that we see through the lens of our experiences, 
that we see through the lens of our relational experiences. But we've all had bad relationships. We talked about that last week. But sometimes those begin to skew our view of God. We begin to see him through a broken lens rather than see him through God's word as he reveals himself to be. We see him through a lens of people who've abandoned us, hurt us, who've broken our trust, who've abused us. And we can begin to think that God may be that way. We could have had a father who was just as close to perfect as you can imagine. But then sometimes it's easy to lose the reality of God's holiness and otherness, his justice and righteousness. So we don't see him accurately. Sometimes the circumstances in life cause us to see him inaccurately. We suffer loss, sickness, financial struggles. We see poverty. We see violence. We see wars. We see hate, all of these things. And and we go, is God really good? And could he possibly be in control? Sometimes the God we create is just due to our preferences. We like a, a God of our preferences. We want a God who sees as we see rather than for us to see as he sees. The Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. When the Bible talks about the heart, it's really talking about not really the organ in our chest as much as it's talking about the place where our desires, our will, our wants, our thoughts come from. It says David sought after God's heart. He was a man after God's heart. What's that mean? He was a man after God's will, his desires, his wants, not his own. We know David wasn't perfect but his heart was bent towards God's desires and wants. What we oftentimes see and how we see this so differently is we want God to be after our own heart, after our wants, our will, our desires. And he just becomes a God of my preference. He becomes a God who is comfortable. And it sometimes becomes this trap and it leads to compromise and compromise leads us to worshiping a God that we've created because this God we've created never impinges on my wants, my desires, and those insatiable appetites. He only exists to fulfill them. And this God that we have created, listen, I want you to understand this. The true God is so much greater than the God that you've created in your mind. He is so much better. Our God that we create, that we think of, that we we have, have allowed to become skewed, he's so puny, so pathetic, so anemic, just so weak compared to the true God. Because here's what happens. When we begin to feel pressure, when external pressure comes against us, those, those gods of our creation, you know what they do? They bow to it. They bow to it. They can't sustain us in it. They bow, they they give in, they give up, and and we're left again, self-sufficient, just trying to do it on our own because we don't understand the God who is with us. He told Gideon, I will be with you. That should have been enough, but Gideon didn't understand who was promising. And those gods we create, they'll bow, they'll bow in a minute to the pressures of the world. When the pressures begin to come and we begin to feel those, pretty soon our flesh begins to cry out. 
And, and the God who is inside of us begins to be diminished. His voice becomes more quiet, and the voices around us become so loud and so prevalent. But here's the truth, and here's the reality we have to hold on to, that when the pressures from the outside are pushing and pressing upon us, Here's the truth, even if we don't feel it, that the one who is inside of us is greater than the one who is in the world. When John wrote this in 1 John, they were under attack from these false apostles, these false prophets. And he's saying, I know you feel pressured, and I know the enemy's coming against you, but understand right now that even with all this pressure that you're feeling, all the stress that you're under, that the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world, that Jesus has overcome the world. We have to know who he is. We have to understand who he is. God's encouragement to Gideon was that he would win because God was with him. He said, I will be with you. And God ends up proving that. He was faithful in that because God doesn't know how to be unfaithful. But our self-sufficiency begins to show its head. It exists because we don't understand and know the I who is with us. I am with you. Do we know the I? I want you to think back to Moses. Moses in Exodus 14, God calls him to deliver the Israelites out of Egypt. And Moses says, if I go, who do I tell them has sent me? What is your name? And he says, I am who I am. That's what God tells him. He says, tell them that I am has sent you. That statement in Hebrew, it actually means self-sufficient. And I want you to understand this today. God is the only self-sufficient one. And what it means is God is saying, I am self-sufficient. I am always, I always have enough power. I'm always in control. I, I'm never uh, caught off guard. And he said, not only are those things true, that I'm, I'm sovereign, I'm good, I'm faithful, you can trust me. Not only are those things true, but I've already been where you're going. He said, I am the alpha, the omega. I am from the beginning to the end. I am everything in between. I am sufficient for your needs. I am sufficient to fulfill your purpose in life. I am sufficient to carry you through loss. I am sufficient to give you strength in sickness. It's why he could tell Paul that my grace is sufficient. He says, my power is made perfect in weakness. And I want you to understand this, that that God who says, I am, he says that I am enough. It is the same God who tells Gideon in the book of Judges, I will be with you. He's saying, Gideon, I will be sufficient. I know you don't see it, Gideon, and I know I'm about to take you down to 300 men, but if you'll lean into me and not your ability, you'll lean into me and my sufficiency, which is never exhausted, and quit leaning on your own and leaning on your own understanding and your own logic. He's saying, listen, Gideon, I will do this. And I don't know the situation you're facing, 
I don't know what you're up against, against, but this is what I do know. Sometimes we have to quit looking at what we don't know and begin to look at what we do know. I don't know what you're up against, but I know this, that God is sufficient. That he is in control and that we can trust him. The God who said, I am to Moses is the God who said, I will be with you to Gideon. And as Jesus had finished his earthly ministry before he was taken up, he gave us what's called the Great Commission. And Jesus said this, he said, go into the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He goes on, he gets to the end in Matthew 28, 20, and he says, and I'm with you to the ends of the age. Isn't that cool? Isn't it cool to think about the fact that Jesus says, I will be with you, not just to those he was speaking to, but that he's with us. He is with us. I will be with you. God elsewhere has promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Knowing that Jesus is with us. And see, here's the thing, listen, listen. Most of the time, that's where we stop. We say, listen, God is with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Now go and live in peace. But here's the thing, I've already told you that when God says, I will be with you, we need to know who the I is. It's bad grammar, but we need to know who the I is because who the I is matters. Think about it like this. If you are standing on the edge of a dark forest, it's dark, this forest is dense. There's lions and tigers and bears and all kinds of creepy crawly things that will hurt you in this forest. And you're like, I gotta walk through the forest. I gotta go in here. And fear begins to creep in. Uncertainty begins to creep in and someone taps you on the shoulder and you turn around and they say, do not be afraid. I'm with you, let's go. Does it not matter who the I is? Because if you feel a tap on your shoulder and someone says, do not be afraid for I'm with you, let's go, and you turn around and it's a serial killer. That just makes it worse. If you feel a tap on your shoulder and someone says, don't be afraid, for I'm with you. And you turn around and it's a 10-year-old girl with Girl Scout cookies. She brought provision, but it's not gonna do a lot of good, right? But what about this? You feel a tap on your shoulder and someone says, don't be afraid, I'm with you. And you turn around and it's a Navy SEAL. I'm like, let's go, you first. Right? But what about this? What about this? You're walking into a dark place. Maybe you're in a dark place and someone taps you on the shoulder and they say, don't be afraid. I'm with you. And you turn around and it's Jesus. How does that change things? But we still gotta go a step further, guys. We gotta go a step further. 
Because listen, if Jesus is just kind of the, you know, the, the stereotypical Talladega Nights Jesus wearing a tuxedo t-shirt that says, I like to party, then he's still a God of your creation. And it's not going to help you when you've hit bottom and getting to the bottom of another bottle doesn't do it anymore. If he's just a nice guy who showed us how to love, but the reality of that love has never been realized in our hearts, then he is just a God we've created and he'll never be able to compel us by his love to complete his purposes and not our own. If he's just a moral policeman who's more concerned with our behavior than our heart, then he is a God we've created and he'll never be able to free us from the shame and guilt and condemnation of our past sin. If he's just a good man that died on a cross, but he was not the perfect son of God, he was not the spotless lamb of God who was slain, who took our punishment for sin on himself on the cross, then he's a God we've created and he's never going to be powerful enough to rescue you from your sin. If he was just a holy man who lived a good life, died and was buried, but never rose from the dead, then he's a God we've created and death has not been defeated and its fear still has a hold of our lives. If he's just a good teacher, if he's just someone who had some good principles for life and that's all he is, then he's still a God of our creation and he's not gonna strengthen us when we're weak. But, if, as Jesus claimed to be seven times in the Gospel of, Matthew, of John, seven times in the Gospel of John, he said, I am. Statements like, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. I am the way, the truth, and the life. If he is the I am, then it means that when he taps on our shoulder to remind us that he is with us, then we can know that the all-sufficient God who has all power, all control, all ability is with us, walking through life, through the good times and the bad, that he never leaves nor forsakes. And here's the thing that I have to understand. I have to understand who the I is. And when I can see him clearly, it changes everything. But here's a question, how do I know? How do I know he's with me? For those of you who've walked with the Lord for a while, you've seen this to be true. Some of y'all ought to be not like, yep, I've seen it. If you've walked with the Lord for a while, you have seen it to be true. He has proved himself as the great I am, the all-sufficient one, over and over and over again. You've learned that trusting through the test builds a testimony, that holding on to faith in the middle of the fight proves God's faithfulness. You know that believing God's promises in the valleys of life will demonstrate God's power to deliver. You, you understand Psalm 40, verse 2, where it says, He lifted me out of the pit of despair, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on solid ground and steadied me as I walked along. Come on, for many of you, that is true, right? You have experienced it time and time again from every challenge, from every test, from everything that you thought was going to take you under. You're still here. And we know this. Don't forget it. Don't forget it. The Israelites were quick to forget. 
for those who haven't had those experiences, you haven't been walking with the Lord. Maybe you've never said yes to Jesus, and so you haven't been walking with Him. You've never by faith put your trust in His sufficiency for you, for the forgiveness of sin. You've never trusted in His Lordship over your life. Or maybe you're just new to this and you don't have those experiences. For those of you who fall into that, I would say look at the cross. Look at the resurrection. See the heart of God in that. Understand who He is. Understand who the I is who promises I will be with you. He is so good, so faithful, so kind, so powerful, so sovereign. We can trust Him. Again, our created gods are so puny and pathetic. They're so anemic, they quickly bow to the pressures of the world. But the one who is in us, if we are believers, the one who is in us is greater. Stir up the Spirit of God in you. When the pressures begin to want to press that down and you begin to not even feel like it, just begin to praise anyway. It was one day this week, I just felt this heaviness. And I'm like, stop, stop. I'm not going there. And I just put on worship music. And I'm like, I'm going to worship my way out of this. And I just began to declare to God his wonders, his power, his goodness. So either you've seen it and don't forget it. Or if you haven't. Why wouldn't you look to the cross? I want to finish this by giving you that opportunity. If you don't know Jesus, you've never said yes to Jesus, but you realize your need for Jesus. I hope that maybe today, if you've never known Christ and you've never known the Father, that today maybe you thought you were coming to church and maybe somebody even drug you here. But what you realize now is that you were actually coming to a divine appointment, an appointment that God had ordained for you from before the creation of the world because he loves you and he wants to call you to himself and he has a purpose for your life. And you might not have realized that walking in, but right now you do because you have experienced the power of God through his presence. And you would say right now, I, I need him, I need him right now. I know I do, like this is just as clear to me as as anything I've ever known. Then take your first step of faith right now and say yes to Christ. If he has spoken to your heart and he's revealed himself to you and today is the day of salvation for you, I want you just to say, that's me today. I'm saying yes to Jesus for the first time in my life. I know I need him, I'm here. God, I need you. Why don't we do this? For those who can, why don't you stand for just a moment? I don't want us to leave here without thanking the Lord. Father, I thank you this morning for your presence, for the reality of who you are, God. We exalt your name. You are holy. Would you bring revival to our hearts, God, as we seek after you? I pray for a stubborn resolve to press into you to know you more. I thank you, God, that you are the I am.
who goes with us. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, God bless you guys. Let's go in the strength that we have in the Lord.